And it's interesting to watch people move over the course of a conversation from, I don't believe her to, okay, well, if that really happened, I mean, like, don't we all like have drunken stories like that? I mean, like this, like forceful kissing, isn't that just what 17 year old boys do to um, even if they're like, okay, yeah, that was, you know, he held her down, he pinned her hands, he covered her mouth. That's pretty bad, but, but it's been too long. I mean, what is she doing coming out 40 years later and ruining this man's life? And so it's like in a space of one conversation, they'll just sort of leapfrog to whatever excuse allows them to sort of hold on to this belief. Welcome to episode 103 of Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a craft-brewed pint of fine wine or whatever happens to be in your glass. You can catch new episodes weekly as we address and engage what's happening through a theological lens, usually with a good brew in hand. You can join our conversation, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, use the hashtag PT Live. We are at Pub Theology on those platforms. And now we're adding some fun video clips from uh, the show or the pre-show on Instagram TV. And if you want to watch the whole show, including like some interesting pre-show and post-show uh, diversions, um, we're up on YouTube. So check us out. And... If you want to be so inclined and go old school and do the telephone thing, you can leave us a voicemail at 980-PT-LIVE-0. That's 980-785-4830. Or shoot us an email, info at puptheology.com. You can leave comments, queries, questions, things you want us to talk about, things you didn't like that we said. We'll, we'll take it all. That's how you can connect with us. And... Today, we talk hashtag me too and church too and what it will take to believe women. We also discuss when uh, is it appropriate, if ever, to let people back into a role uh, of some prominence where they have a platform after they've been removed for sexual or other misconduct. So where's the line between forgiving and then uh, giving back certain responsibilities of influence and so forth? And to help us in this conversation today, we're joined by the Reverend Leighton Williams. Leighton is a writer focusing on the intersections of faith, justice, politics, and culture with an emphasis on sexuality and gender. And in addition to writing for Sojourners, where she works as the audience engagement editor, love that title. Uh, her work has been published by Religion Dispatches, Believe Out Loud, Reconciling Ministries Network and Presbyterians Today, among others. That's just a few. So welcome, Leighton. Thank you. Glad to be here. You, you've you just boosted the intellectual like, <laughs> of our podcast by like 3 billion percent after that description. There you go. There you go. Well, um, uh, let us know. What are you, what are you drinking today, Leighton? Uh, I am drinking a new Belgium Citradelic Tangerine IPA. I recently discovered that uh, I like IPAs a lot more when they have something citrusy in them. 
So this is one of my uh, favorite beers these days. Kaboom, kaboom. And you're joining us from somewhere on the East Coast, is that right? Yeah, Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, recently having dodged a bullet with Hurricane Florence. So we're uh, back up and running around here. Nice, nice. Well, it's great to have you on the show. An excellent beverage choice, I might say. Thank you. I, I do not agree with that. I was liking you up to the point you mentioned IPA and, you know, no, no judgments or nothing, but yeah, <laughs> one, one strike against you. Um, oh, no. no, you're I'm outnumbered today, Ogan. I'm sorry. <laughs> Here in New England, it is a dark and stormy day. So I figured I'd go with dark and stormy in my uh, copper mug. Um, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a nice concoction of ginger beer and usually dark rum, but if I'm drinking rum, it has to be Mount Gay rum from my homeland of Barbados, the best rum in the world. I believe one of the oldest rums, if not the oldest rum in the world, established this distillery in 1703. This is good stuff. Wow. Wow. Maybe a new show sponsor? Maybe. Ooh. <laughs> There's an idea. There's an idea. I don't know. We might need a much bigger audience. They, they already got an international following. So. Well, I know, but we have a Barbadian <laughs> on the show. so This is true. I will reach out. Yeah, I will, excellent. I will reach out. Nothing to lose if they say no. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, uh, to join Layton, am drinking a New Day IPA. Yeah! This guy is brewed uh, by Saugatuck Brewing near me here in Holland, Michigan. And it's brewed actually as a specialty brew for Mackinac Island, Michigan. So if you know the old film Somewhere in Time, uh, Christopher Reeve, that takes place on Mackinac Island. Anyway, it's a lovely point quite north of here. And it's a hoppy brew, which is my preference. Boo to the hoppy brews. Booze to the hoppy brews. Boo to you. <laughs> Oh man, she's Our, catching up quick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You gotta we have to put Ogan in his place. So um our first question, kind of a warm-up, is what is the most outlandish fib or lie or tall tale that you may have told as a child? I told so many I don't remember. I was having trouble. <laughs> I, I like I went through this phase. I think around, I would say between 11 and 13, which is a long phase where I was, it was mostly 12 and 13, but I was like a, a chronic liar. Like even when I didn't have to tell a lie, I told a lie just to see if I could mm -hmm. get away with it. You know, I concocted great fictions. Last week we talked about memory and me misremembering things. This might be why, because I said a lot of things and I might've been wrong about stuff. So, I honestly didn't remember which one was the worst. Wow. It was that bad. Wow. wow. Uh, any, anything come to mind for you, Leighton? We'll see if Ogan can think of one specifically, you know, while we, while we share. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, well, I also was a compulsive liar as a child. Uh, I think it lasted longer than a couple of years. Uh, so I don't know about uh, the worst, but I was just uh, thinking this past weekend was my stepsister's birthday. And I was telling her that I remember that when I was around 10 and she was around 11, she was visiting. And I, um, I don't know why I did this, but I told her that we were um, 
going to throw her a secret surprise roller skating party. And that specifically, I remember that I told her Whoopi Goldberg was going to be there. And I just like made the whole thing up. And I, I thought it was so outlandish that she would not like believe me. And what happened was she knew the Whoopi Goldberg thing was bogus, but she thought there really was going to be this surprise roller skate party. And there was not. And I, she was like heartbroken Mm. and uh, she doesn't even remember that now, but it's, I think you remember things maybe better when it's, when you are like, wow, I was a real jerk in that moment. And it just sticks with you. So yeah, that one was pretty bad. I have a lot of questions, namely why Whoopi Goldberg? Of all the celebrities, why Whoopi Goldberg? Um, yeah, we were obsessed with Sister Act, so I think that ah. probably had a lot to do with it. Yeah, okay. that makes sense. That makes sense. I I, rem- I remembered my big lie. I remembered my big oh, lie. Oh yeah, lay it on us. Also, also involved in sibling when she told that story, jogged my memory. Um, my brother's eight or nine years younger than I am, and my and we shared a bedroom. We lived in a three bedroom house. My parents had their bedroom. My my. My mother made my brother and I share a bedroom, and the third bedroom was was her sewing room. Um, so showed you where oh. the priorities were. Um, and <laughs> and she was obsessed about uh, me pushing in the dresser drawers. Like after I take clothes out, you know, you push the drawers back in. This was her big thing. And one day we were we were horsing around was chasing my brother and he ran into the bedroom tripped fell and grazed right next to his eye on the corner of a dresser drawer that was out i mean like an inch to the left he would have lost the eye. yikes and and he uh you know after we realized he wasn't severely injured or anything i mean it was it was just a graze but um i said to him i said to him like, don't tell mom how this happened and let me do all the talking. And he said, okay. And when my mother asked us what happened, I started telling some crazy story what we were just playing or whatever. But in the moment, I saw the look on my brother's face shift from the... I'm admiring my big brother. Let him take the lead to wait a minute. I have some power here now. I got something I can leverage. And you could, I could see the transformation come over his face. And from then on, like he was, yeah, he was on to me. And it was a lot of bargaining and bribing of him to keep still about the whole thing. Eventually she found out. And it, and, and let's just say uh, the corporal punishment laws in Barbados are very lax. When it comes to punishment, yeah. Now, if you'd ask me what's the worst beating I got from a mom, I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) That's next week's episode. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Well, when I was a kid, uh, we lived in Alaska for a stretch, and we had uh, at the end of our yard, we had a tall fence. And my sister, who was older, and I, we told my younger brother, our younger brother, that we there was a goat that lived on the other side of this tall fence, which you know when we were little we couldn't figure out how to get over or around, <laughs> and and we were like oh yeah we give him carrots and all this stuff and we we had him believing for a couple of years that we had a goat uh, on the other side of this this fence uh, and I can't quite remember how or when he figured it out but uh, you know so it was pretty harmless uh, but there you go 
you know, and sometimes when you have someone in cahoots with you, it feels a little easier to pull one over on someone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I have one from a friend of mine who, when he was young, he was maybe, uh, I don't know, I want to say eight or nine and he was faking sick from school. And so he somehow had his mom faked out, uh, faked a temperature or a sore throat. I don't remember which. And his mom and dad went up to work and his siblings went off to school and he was home. And then he thought, well, I better let school know that I'm not going to be at school today. So he calls up the school office and he says, hi, this is my mom. Nice. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So, you know, he was on the way with some good execution and then couldn't quite complete the, uh, complete the plan. Got to be able to follow through. Got to stick with the story. Um, <laughs> Couple replies on uh, Twitter from some of our followers. Um, uh, Gord Spence at Gord Spence on Twitter says, "When we were at the beach when I was little, I put my face into the water. My parents asked me what I saw beneath the waves. I said I told them two fish dancing with each other. Harmless, obviously, but embarrasses me to still remember it." And then we got Kathleen at God Girl. Um, that I had an older brother who would kick my bully's asses. His name was Brendan and he was six, three. See, now that's, nice. that's committing to the lie. Cause you, you, she's got a backstory. <laughs> right. Backs. She's named yeah. the fictional brother. Kudos to you, Kathleen. Kudos. Well done. Well done. And two fish dancing. You never know, you know, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think we got one on Facebook from Julie Moore. Uh, too many to pick just one. Yep, I feel you, Julie. I feel you. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Cereal. All these people are now. All these people are now ministers. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Aptitude test. What are you good at? Well, how do, do fibs and tall tales count? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Put it on the resume. Put it on the resume. We see where you're going. So uh, we want to discuss a little bit as a lead-in. How does it feel when someone doesn't believe you? And this could be on anything, really, uh, just to kind of warm us up into more of the meat of uh, believing women. You want to jump in, Leighton? Yeah, sure. Well, so as a brief aside, I'll say that um, I'm staying with my brother and his family right now, and I have a 10-year-old nephew who's very much in the um, – compulsive lying phase of childhood. And so I feel like every night that I've been here, there's like a moment where he gets called out for something and he denies and denies. And it's like, we just know, like, you know, there's like obvious proof and he gets so worked up about being wrongly accused, even though it's very clear that it's not a wrongful accusation. And it just made me think about like that stage of childhood where you're just like so determined not to get in trouble that you convince yourself that you're innocent when you're not. Um, anyway, uh, so there's, there's that experience of not being believed when you are actually are guilty. But, um, I was thinking about, I don't have like a specific example, but, um, I was thinking about times in my life when I've been, um, not believed and, um, especially by people I trust and like whose respect for me really matters. What I, what I mostly remember feeling like is just really, um, powerless like it's so frustrating and it's like you have your truth and you know that it's true, but especially if you can't prove it or if your proof doesn't hold up for somebody else. 
um, it's just like the worst feeling and it's probably not the worst feeling in the world, but it's a terrible feeling it's to up there. not, not know what else you can do. Yeah. It's sort of, it, for me, it sort of invalidates me as a person, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I remember when I first made this realization, how horrible I felt for, uh, all the other people that I lied to <laughs> in the, uh, be, before that, but, but when someone doesn't believe me, it, it feels like they don't believe the whole of me, you know. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. um, and and my my journey has always or continues to be, um, totally believing in my own intrinsic self worth and not needing validation from other people. But at the same mm-hmm. time, when lack of validation comes in such a pointed way it it still hurts yeah for sure i've experienced this interesting thing uh where and i'm sure perhaps you have a an experience that can relate i I grew up in a fairly uh conservative church denomination and tradition and uh you know i was pretty involved in church and you know a, a president a youth group that kind of thing and then was tracking for seminary you know went to seminary and kind of looked up to within a certain circle right and uh, seen as a leader someone we can trust about about God or things in the Bible that kind of thing and then after seminary as my um, theological thinking expanded and started shifting more left and more progressive as well as social values and politics and all of that at some point I crossed a line where nothing I said could be trusted and I was suddenly other and I was a person to, you know, who had lost validation for people. So, you know, just a really interesting phenomenon of we, we believe you at one point and then all of a sudden don't trust this guy or this guy can't be trusted, or we don't believe you. And it's like, hey, I'm the same person. And it's actually my journey with God and my study of scripture and my experience of humanity that's opened up some new ways of thinking. Wouldn't you like to hear about that? <laughs> no, <laughs> not always. You're not sticking with the party line. <laughs> right. Yeah. Party line. It makes me think of, um, it makes me think actually what you were saying, Brian, uh, of when I came out, um, as by and like even talking to people who um, were somewhat left leaning and like even uh, saw themselves as gay and lesbian allies, especially coming out as bi, I had multiple people that I trusted that that just flat out responded to me like, "No, you're not. You are not this thing that you just said." So not just disbelieving me, but like literally telling me what my truth was, is either because they didn't think it was real or because they didn't want to believe it about me. And yeah, that was a certain kind of brutal when it's your own sort of personal truth. Did they also follow up with telling you what you were? <laughs> like it wasn't enough to not believe, um, to believe yeah, a little you bit. were telling it, but then they were like, no, you're not, you're not that. This is what you are. Yeah, there was a little bit of, um, no, I know you better than you know yourself. Like you're just confused. Let me, let, let me help you. Let me clarify. Yeah, that's hard when it's, I mean, it's a core piece of your identity and who you are. And and there's a certain vulnerability in sharing that with people. And then to just have it be thrown back, like, no, we don't believe you or you're wrong. Right. That's tough. That's really tough. It's, it's, it's for some reason, and because this is how my brain works, 
Um, what's coming to mind right now is, do you guys remember Rachel Dolezal? Mm-hmm. And 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 that whole that whole experience of her claiming an ethnicity, and people were like. You know, it was it was maybe like the one single occasion I can think of where somebody said, "This is who I am," and everybody else was like, "No, you're not," and mostly everybody else was right. right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? There, there may be that one exception occasion where when you claim you are something, it's clearly not true. But generally, yes, when someone says, "This is who I am," this is what's happened to me. You know, be especially when it's about your personhood. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, with the obvious thing happening nationally um, is the uh, attempt to uh, have Brett Kavanaugh seated on the Supreme Court. And uh, a couple of pretty major accusations have come forward of sexual misconduct on his part and a high against him and a high number of high profile Christian conservatives have said they just simply don't believe uh, the first accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, who is a clinical psychology professor. And she recounts that a drunk teenage Brett Kavanaugh pinned her to a bed before sexually assaulting her. And, you know, and, and people are not believing her. And, and my thought is what does she have to gain by putting herself and her personhood and her life in the public sector like this? Like what's her end game if she's just making this all up. And yet there are people who think she is making it all up and she's either actively participating with the left or being used by Democrats to block this nomination. But you know, hers is not an isolated case, right? Women have been not believed for a long time when it comes to rape, sexual assault, sexual misconduct. So what is it going to take for, uh, for this culture to shift and to change? And I was going to say, hers is not even an isolated case when it comes to him. There's another accuser who came forward, and then um, everybody's uh, favorite lawyer, Michael Avenatti, who, for some reason, you know how people get like, you know, lawyers may get that one case that makes a career. He's like on case number four right now. This dude is something else. But, uh, you know, he he recently said, I'm representing the third person who does not want to, you know, is not ready to tell their story yet. But now there's number three. So it's not even isolated in, in this particular uh, context. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think, first of all, that um there are a lot of different things going on as we have moved into this like era of me too and this sort of unveiling and we have a tendency to talk about things in like very black and white terms um which doesn't give us a lot of space for nuanced conversation about how multiple things can be true and about how like there really is this whole um spectrum of inappropriate behavior that like needs to be addressed and and i also think sort of with that I don't know. My sense is that, as y'all have said, women have long not been believed. Um, and, and just in recent years, we're finally starting to see some uh, responsiveness to that and some real consequence. And I think that it has seemed exceptionally 
really severe to people because for so long there's been very little consequence at all. Um, I should say specifically, I think that is true for white men. Um, I think there's a more complicated history when you um, bring race into it. But, um, but yeah, so I just, I think I, I, I sort of, um, maybe I'm wrong here, but my sense is that it's not necessarily that people really don't believe it. It's that they don't want to believe it. And it's because they're scared of what the world looks like if all of these things are true and these consequences really are merited. And we've just gone on and on for, you know, years and years and years, allowing the world to exist without those consequences. Well, yeah. well said, because if they believe this, then they got to explain themselves for electing a sexual predator to be president. I mean, how many how many cases or or reports of assault have been um lobbed at Donald Trump himself and yet and yet here he is being elected being elected a lot by women too which still blows my mind um so for them to accept this new story now with in the Kavanaugh context they, they, they can't do it because then they've got to explain themselves when it comes to Trump, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they're, that, 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 that's always going to be a roadblock. I, I, I think for them. Yeah. And I think uh, what you noted Leighton is, is so true that this kind of thing has gone on for so long with no consequence that it does feel for some very threatening and severe and wait a minute, you know, and, you know, for a number of, of men in power, they're probably cycling back through, oh, wait, what's my own history? And, and you know, what do I have to look out for? Um, but that's exactly what it should be, right? It's just, uh, you know, this stuff should be clearly right. not okay, not appropriate. There should be, I think, a, a default to believe uh, the victim, not the accused. But of course, in our legal system, it's innocent until proven guilty. But what's frustrating here is that we're not even willing to have an investigation of this to see what merit there is. There's just a wanting to sweep it under the rug because of the political stakes, which make it complicated. Right. Well, and I've, I've watched, like I had these conversations with people um, and like tried to listen to folks reasoning for, for doubting her story or for supporting Kavanaugh. And, um, and it's interesting to watch people move over the course of a conversation from um, I don't believe her to, okay, well, if that really happened, I mean, like, don't we all like have drunken stories like that? I mean, like this, like forceful kissing, isn't that just what 17 year old boys do to um, even if they're like, okay, yeah, that was, you know, he held her down, he pinned her hands, he covered her mouth. That's pretty bad, but, but it's been too long. I mean, what is she doing? coming out 40 years later and ruining this man's life. And so it's like in a space of one conversation, they'll just sort of leapfrog to whatever excuse allows them to sort of hold on to this belief that, um, that Kavanaugh should be defended and that she should be sort of villainized or disbelieved. Yeah. And some have already jumped to that position. Like Franklin Graham uh, just, you know, is assuming it, it may well be the case, but it's actually not relevant whether, to his job as a Supreme Court justice, whether or not he committed this thing as a teenager. He sees it outside the, the role. And I think that's also was part of the mindset for a lot of uh, evangelical conservatives in voting for Donald Trump. You know, there were quotes out, well, I'm not electing him to be my pastor or my spiritual advisor. He's running the country. So his questionable moral 
history isn't really relevant, even though it's been extremely relevant in the entire, like for the last 50 years in that party. Right. And, you know, uh, Layton, you, you brought up a lot of important things there, but the first thing I want to um, um, talk about, and I'm glad that you were the one who brought it up, is about the nuance and the mm -hmm. spectrum. Because, you know, um, it's not, not all crimes need to be treated equally and have mm -hmm. the same end result. Um, you know, and, and it, I, I think the pendulum is swinging back and forth a little bit, you know, from, from you know, no one's going to talk about these, address these. Um, these men in power are going to continue to abuse their power. To you know, I guess in the in, in the highest fervor moments of the YouTube movement, um, you know we have we have people like um, oh my god, I'm blanking on names. Me a name recall. Who's the senator? Al Franken. Oh, Franken, you know, yeah. Who who didn't didn't do a good thing, um, but did it need to be treated in the same context as Harvey Weinstein? Uh, no. Uh, I, right. I don't believe that. I don't. I don't believe he should have resigned his post. I, you know, and we and we're going to talk about later about you know people coming back from this position, mm -hmm. but I think a lot and and so much the nuance was ignored, and um, in in a rush for condemnation, and I'm not saying and I think and I think what's happening now is slowly but surely, especially in this Kavanaugh case. I think there's a realization happening that time needs to be taken to explore. Time needs to be taken to explore a what happened, the veracity of it. You know, I, I, I think the most shocking thing I heard in terms of people responding was there was a group of women talking and some and a woman said, you know, there was an intercourse, so we can't call it sexual abuse. And and like my head, like just almost spun around on his neck. I'm like, that. Wait, what? Like that's yeah. that's insane. And and him coming out with the the Brett Kavanaugh with the crazy story of you know this couldn't happen because I you know there there couldn't have been sexual abuse because I was a virgin through high school and college. Um, and and I think that it's important if, if there's nothing else being generated right now is a clarity of discussion about what constitutes abuse. And who gets to define it, and how we respond to it, and the message that we're sending. Uh, you know, my daughter just turned eighteen this weekend. She's a teenager. She's an adult. She'd like to think, but still a teenager. And what the overall message, and, and the message that that is being sent, is yeah, seventeen, eight-year-old, nineteen-year-old boys. They do these things. It's okay. They're just boys. They can't help themselves. Right. And like that's the thing that infuriates me the most when when we have people asking you know what boy doesn't do stuff like that I, i'm raising my hand going, yeah, not me right. <laughs> like right. you know again not not from a place of, of putting myself up on a pedestal but no this is not normal behavior stop trying to normalize abuse and i think um i think folks have put themselves into that corner and place of normalizing abuse because they've normalized an abuser uh, mm -hmm. with the president, and now they've got to rationalize all abuse that follows in his wake. And we have this coming up in our churches too. You know, the I mean, mm -hmm. the church two scandal again. You know, um, we we like to pick on the Catholic Church, but let's be clear, this is happening in all denominations. Mm -hmm. 
And here we are looking at how, you know, can we, should we, and of course we should, hold the perpetrators accountable no matter how long ago it happened. There's no... Mm -hmm. There's, there's no there's no time stamp on healing and recovery from trauma. There shouldn't be a time stamp on being held accountable for being the perpetrator of that trauma. So here's a here's a question. This came up at our local pub theology gathering uh, last night, and that was if Kavanaugh had uh, instead of absolutely denying everything, if he had said, uh, "Yeah, something happened, and I regret it. I was a teenager. I'd been drinking. It was wrong." Um, do you think there would have been forgiveness? Would we have moved past this or he have moved past this? Would there be, would it have been better for him than if he's actually lying and it, something really did happen, but he's lying. Is he doubling, doubling down in a way that could be worse? Uh, what, what do people think about that? I, I think that, um, I mean, to be honest with you, I think, if he had come forward and said, yes, this happened, I deeply regret it, this is how I've changed, or you know, sought repentance, or whatever language you want to use. Truthfully, I think it would have made, um, I think it would make Republicans defend him more and say, look at, you know, like he, this is, he's on the path to redemption, whatever, like look at what a great guy he is, that he did this, sure, this horrible thing, he owned it. Um, I, I honestly think because I do think this is happening on a political level. I mean, I think you can't ignore that element of it. I don't imagine that many um, uh, Democratic politicians would have then been like, okay, I think it's okay. Like he should still get confirmed. <laughs> right. um, and so, yeah, I think it's a little, and for me personally, I mean, I, I certainly think if it, if it happened, then the more right thing would have been for him to own it, certainly. Um, that would have mattered to me in how I receive him as a person, but it, I don't think, I mean, what I have said is we're not talking about whether this guy deserves to like not be in jail or even right. not be a judge. We're asking whether this guy deserves to be on the highest court in the land. <laughs> and like, to me, right. it's pretty clear that, um, you know, it's worth, it's worth it for us to say we want somebody that doesn't have this history so. because because that history is not disconnected to his views on women's and women's rights and women's equality that's that's if anything that's that's like an early manifestation because when you look at his when you look at his record he's he's not a fan of supporting women you know right. women's rights so for me they're all connected so for me it yeah. is important if it if it happened that it does, it does um, tell me about, oh, this is just another extension of how he may vote on issues as a Supreme Court justice. The other thing that I want to highlight uh, about this, which I'm hearing a lot of people saying, and more specifically, there was like this group of, I think, like 65 women or something who came out and signed a letter of support for him saying, we know him personally and professionally, and this is not who he is. Therefore, mm -hmm. we don't like this woman is again who a person shows up to be in public is not who they are in private, <laughs> and 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 mm -hmm. for me that's that's the biggest thing about you know uh, bringing it back to the church too scandals mm -hmm. and the priests and the ministers and the pastors who who abused people in their congregation and you go I can't believe it you know, that's father so-and-so, that's reverend so-and-so, and all the good things that they did. I can't believe that they would do this. So therefore, we don't support the victim. 
and we say the victim is making up a story. Again, mm-hmm. come on, people, we're smarter than this. Who a person shows up as in public, not necessarily who they are in private. The, the, the integrity isn't there for everybody. And abusers tend to be really good at covering up their abuse. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Now, if we if we flipped this situation around, and let's say it was a progressive or a Democrat being appointed to the Supreme Court, and a similar incident was found and came forward, uh, how quickly do you think Democrats would say, "Oh, we we agree this candidate has uh, has failed and and it doesn't qualify"? We'll find a new one, um, which would be a different approach than what the Republicans are doing right now. Or how much would they be replicating, defending our let's say our person? Uh, but more likely our guy if we're talking about sexual abuse. Um, Yeah. So how different would it be or how much the same would it be when the political weight is shifted in the reverse direction? I would, I think it'd be a little different. I think they would be that same initial denial and support. But if we're to use, again, going back to Al Franken as an example, Mm -hmm. it was, it was also Democrats who were on the train of he needs to resign because of this, because we can't be seen trying to defend someone who's a perpetrator of these crimes and these incidences. Again, the nuance being lost in terms of, you know, what he did compared to, you know, sure. much worse behaviors. So so I I I think the Democrats would not be fighting as hard to keep him in that spot. You know, and again, I understand why the Republicans are fighting this hard to keep Brett Kavanaugh in this position. There's a list of judges they can choose from. Right. You know, find somebody who doesn't have this. And if if, if the end game is to try and get a, a, a conservative judge on the court before the midterms, it seems a very bizarre way to go about it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, one thing I do think that, this, this scenario you've introduced, Ryan, uh, one interesting facet I think this brings up, though, is that um, I think, Ogan, you were saying earlier that um, it matters, and I agree, um, but it matters that Kavanaugh also has these positions that uh, many would interpret as being anti-women or um, anti-women's uh, justice, right? Uh, specifically, his position on abortion is the one that comes to mind for me. But, and like looking at that in light of his history and how those things are tied together. Um, meanwhile, I can imagine, I mean, I'd like to believe, and I think I do believe that um, many Democrats would be more receptive to, to not bringing on somebody who um, had this sort of history. Um, but I can also imagine people saying, well, yes, this thing happened 40 years ago, but look at this person's record of voting in favor of women's rights and all of this stuff, which just for me brings up the fact, and and I think this is a worthwhile conversation to have, that in the same way that you have these uh, seemingly morally upstanding religious leaders in the church who turn out to, you know, commit these horrible abuses, you also have um, people again, a lot of progressive white men in particular, who sort of um, talk the talk about women's justice and like, I'm a feminist or a feminist ally, et cetera, et cetera. And then it turns out that like, they also treat women terribly. There was a story that got uh, released by Jezebel yesterday about a journalist at Mike um, and all these women coming forward. And that, you know, that's again, nuance. That's not 
a case of violent assault, um, but a long history of, of really terrible, um, emotionally abusive and manipulative treatment of women. And he's this guy that's like known for being a progressive journalist who fights for women's rights. Um, so I do think there's, there's that layer too, um, that we, we tend to have a blind spot about people if they own a particular political profile. Show title, Men Are Jerks. <laughs> what? I said show title, Men Are Jerks. <laughs> well, sometimes. Well, I mean, yes, sometimes, but usually when these things, these stories come up, like, you know, nine and three quarters times out of ten, it's, it's a man who's the abuser, you know, so... Yeah or even more than nine and three quarters. Um, so you want to move us to number four, Ogan? And that'd be too far off. So, so yeah. So that question of, uh, that I kind of mentioned earlier or made reference to the, the, where does forgiveness play a part in this and, um, how do we, uh, or do we allow these individuals back into positions of authority and power? And, and this has been coming up recently. We see, we, we've seen reports of people like, you know, Matt Lauer is, you know, and, and uh, Charlie Rose are like, you know, already in the process of planning how they're going to return to like TV and the positions uh, close to what they held before. Cosby uh, show reboot. Oh no, just kidding. <laughs> uh, no. Um, although did you watch, <laughs> did you watch the Emmys? <laughs> the, the funniest piece on the Emmys was uh, Michael Che. Uh, he was one of the co-hosts from Saturday Night Live. And yeah. he did a section called uh, the Reparation Emmys <sighs> where he, he, literally, he literally went and found like, like some black uh, TV stars who would never want Emmys. People like, you know, Kadeem Hardison from It's a Different World and um, uh, Jimmy Walker from, from Good Times and gave them Emmys. It's like, you know, you were never given these Emmys, but you deserve them. And basically when they looked at them, it was all of Bill Cosby's old Emmys. Because <laughs> oh, man. Taken from him. And they were like, no, we don't want these. This is some of them were like, we don't we don't want this Emmy. No, no, no. This is not the one we want. Um, That's hilarious. Like, but yes, so 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 what does forgiveness mean in this context? Can can, you know, is a perpetrator of such a crime um, especially when it comes to sexual assault, let's stay in this context because we're talking about it. Yeah. Um, does forgiveness equal putting them back in that position? How do we believe? Do we believe that they're truly repentant if they say they are? What would, would we base that on? Um, would you be comfortable going to a church where the minister, you know, admitted he was, you know, he committed acts of sexual abuse? And for some reason, he's still in the pulpit. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But where, where are we with all that? Yeah. Pause for thought. <laughs> yeah, I think that, um, oh, man, I think this is really complicated. Um, and I think it depends a lot on what the particular abuses and crimes are. Um, I, and like what the particular position is, because it seems to me like what we're really talking about is not um, a level of personal forgiveness, but a level of, of corporate forgiveness and sort of societal yeah. forgiveness. Right. Because 
I mean, I believe deeply in redemption and forgiveness and that God is at work in people's lives and in those ways and that they can happen. And um, generally speaking, my beliefs around uh, the justice system are more geared towards uh, restorative justice and redemption pathways and stuff. Um, but I, I think, you know, you also have to look at situations where was, was the position of power um, a person was in was was that sort of, um, what do you call it, an accessory to their abuse, right? Did they, in other words, would putting somebody back in a position of power be really tied to the likelihood of uh, another abuse situation? Or, or, I mean, I mean, I do think this, I mean, that's where this Kavanaugh situation is sort of different because this happened when he was a teenager. Again, not giving teenagers like a total write-off on that, but um, versus somebody who genuinely use their position. Right. Um, that's an important to, distinction. To abuse yeah. Uh, that said, I, I also have known people who have um, taken advantage of people by virtue of their position and like have really done the hard work of uh, repairing relationships and repenting and sort of dealing with their own crap uh, over the course of many years. Um, and because I know and love those people, I believe in that. And I believe I've seen them be denied chances for forgiveness or sort of restoration um, that feel really wrong to me. So um, I guess there are certainly times when I believe it. And it really depends on the nature of the abuse and the nature of the position of power. The nuance this is where the nuance comes in. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it, it, as you said, Leighton, I think it really um, relates to what what is the platform we're considering giving this person uh, allow them to do in regard to the area where they morally failed. And if this sets them up to be in the position to take advantage of people in the same way, I think you really have to see how much work has been done uh, in terms of repentance, counseling, training, you know, I don't want to say penance, but you know, something right that that really exhibits a transformed or changed person. And even then, right, we want to be hesitant, because we also have a responsibility on behalf of the community that could be affected by this person being put in that being put in that position. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it, it context really matters. And I think you know, someone mentioned this at our group last night. If we're talking about children's ministry and we have a sexual predator with a record uh, or a pedophile, right? I don't think there's any amount of time that's going to go by where we say, yeah, you're, you're allowed to be in this position with children. I think we would just say that find some other way you can serve. It won't be there. So, um, um, again, context and nuance. You may have someone who, an adult, who had a relationship with a 17 and a half year old, you know, mm-hmm. again, inappropriate, again, illegal. And right. that person, you know, go ahead. Uh, there was one time it was, uh, you know, so we have this one time incident of this I knew person. you were going to find the wiggle room there. As, I'm not finding the wiggle room, <laughs> nor am I talking about anyone on this show. <laughs> Let's just be clear. Good. <laughs> Um, you you know, but here's a situation where now this person is labeled as a child, you know, a child abuser, child predator, whatever. Right. And they're carrying this label for the rest of their life. 
that's not the same as a person who has a repeated pattern of, you know, going after five and six year olds. Right. So again, yeah. Then where's the, the nuance? You gotta, I, I think every situation you look at differently and, Mm -hmm. and this is the trouble because we want to apply rules and we want to apply punishments. Um, uh, across the board, you want to say, when you do this, here's what happens to you. And, right. you know, it, it's, it's not just that black and white where shades are gray. And this is, this is the difficulty of creating laws and, and processes and procedures and policies. You know, they tend to be black and white when they kind of really aren't. I, I, I had to spend about 45 minutes on the phone with, with someone in my community who who's asking for an exception from something and I'm like and and I really wanted to give it to her because what she was proposing was kind of like you know this is a really good thing I think we should do this but we have a policy that speaks mm-hmm. against it so right. in order for this to happen we have to change the policy and there's a process for that it might take a little while but I'm okay with doing this and she was like well no I don't want us to go through all that trouble mm-hmm. I'm like are you sure she's like yes I'm like okay but but again I think that's a good thing because policies, mm-hmm. procedures, laws, they need to be updated. They need to be addressed. New situations will come up that, that, that the current law doesn't take everything into account for. So we have to amend it. That's growth. That's process. That's transformation. So it, you know, it's a tricky situation. When do you do that? When do you not do that? Well, yeah. And I think our, um, You know, I think in this movement, like the Jezebel piece I was referring to, uh, I think the headline was something like the next step in the Me Too movement is the gray areas. And so, yeah, I think as we grow in our awareness and our acceptance of the prevalence of of abuse and the need to respond to that, um, you know, as you were saying, like we need to revise our understanding of what justice for that looks like, what constitutes abuse, how we talk about that. Um, because our understandings have been sort of outdated for a while and rigid. Um, I also think, speaking of nuance, um, this is something that's really important to me, but also very hard, um, is regardless of what happens to somebody in a position of power in terms of being restored to their position of power, I do really believe the church is called to be the church for all people. And, and I think that includes people who have committed abuses. Sorry, my my brother's dog is working in the background. He's a loud dog. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, I, I think that includes people who have committed abuses. That said, as somebody, I mean, like most women, I have my own Me Too stories. And um, the thought of having to sit next to somebody in a pew or at a church potluck who has committed an abuse against me or against somebody I love is is like that violates my sense of safety and belonging in the community. And yet I also theologically believe that person deserves to have that community as well. Um, so I think that's a, probably a whole nother question for another time. But um, how do we as a church create space for those people? Yeah, that's a great example. That might, uh, we, we might do a post-show discussion on that maybe if we have time. Uh. <laughs> uh. But yeah, it's, 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 um, um, I, I've shared this in the show before. Um, recently I had to, I had to ask a congregant to not come to church anymore because he was a person who 
did not understand that the church was not his dating pool and he didn't mm. keep asking women out all the time all the time repeatedly and mm. you know um was he being abusive no was he was he was actually a lot of times a very helpful volunteer um for us um when it came to things in events but there was just you know and i and i sat and talked with him a lot there was just something in him again how his and, and this comes back to the Kavanaugh thing, how how he may have viewed women and the role women play in his life and and his beliefs about the dynamic and relationship between men and women that made him feel he was not in the wrong to be doing this and couldn't understand why, you know. And um, but to your point, for the safety of other people and the comfort of of, of women in our congregation, I, I said, if we're at this point where I've invited you and given you options to change your behavior and it didn't happen, so we're going to have to ask you to leave. Which and, and interestingly enough, while like the vast majority of the congregation was in supportive of this, there were those individuals, some of them women, who were like, but this is not who we are as a church. We're welcoming. We're open. Where's the room for accepting people who as they are? And I'm like, there's a difference between an accepting a person who they are and accepting their behavior. Yeah. You know, behaviors. We we have a right to say here are the behaviors we want to experience in this community. Um, and you know, those vary from community to community. Find a community where your behavior is accepted if you want to be in a community. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing. Yeah. You have to balance the risk and safety and well-being of the rest of the congregation. And, and that, um, takes precedence, even though, as you said, it's so hard when, when you are framed as a community that is, is seeking to welcome everyone and seeking to push the edges of really welcoming everyone. And yet when there's that problematic behavior, you know, you, you could also apply that to, let's say you have an avowed white supremacist who comes and is very vocal, you know, that person is welcome, but a behavior in which and uh, vocalization of, of views that the congregation does not agree with, that is that part is not welcome. And if you can't separate that for reform, then maybe you're not actually welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, given Given the time... Do we want to hit number five or do we want to go to pass some four? Because I think number five is number five is is a is a is a good question. What we we think Can Brian. We do number five in oh. like five minutes yeah. or less. Yeah. We'll start. <laughs> we'll start. <laughs> Tee us up. <laughs> All right. So uh well, the Bible, right, is a source of inspiration and faith to Christians, to Jews, uh, and to many people. And um, there are a number of texts, which Phyllis uh, Tribble, among others, call its texts of terror, in which there are tales of women being raped, sacrificed, silenced by members of their own community or family. And so given this biblical um, reality and background where do people of faith who rely on the bible as a source of scripture and guidance where do they turn for moral guidance on treating women with dignity when their own scripture texts often betray that value so so i have i have a thought on this i mean yeah so the 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 bible has plenty of terrible stories as you were saying in terms of you know the rape of the unnamed concubine and jephthah's daughter and lot's wife for that matter and i could go on and on because yeah. I wrote about all of them in seminary. 
Um, and I mean, you know, those stories do not necessarily always speak to justice for women. They certainly don't speak to the full humanity of women. Um, I think on the whole that, I mean, this could get me in trouble, but I, I think the Bible is an imperfect document. Um, that you said, clearly, you I find not great listen to, uh, you've clearly not listened to a lot of episodes of this show. You well, I didn't mean in here. trouble with y'all. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Touche. Touche. Uh, if some random other person is listening and is troubled, <laughs> let me say it again. The Bible is an imperfect document. Um, but I, I take comfort in, in, um, the fact that Jesus stands up for women. Um, I mean, I, I think specifically of the woman who is accused of committing adultery and on the verge of being stoned. Um, but I think even, and actually, yeah, his encounter with the Syrophoenician woman at the well. Um, but the story that really means the most to me is the story when the woman, the Canaanite woman or the Syrophoenician woman, um, comes to Jesus and, um, begs for help for her daughter. And Jesus is like flat out a jerk to her. Uh, which to me is his having been enculturated by his context to devalue women from um, this place and women in in general. Um, And she calls him out on it and he reforms his behavior. He changes his mind. And like, I wish we as a society could look for that story and see what example that shows of like, yes, we have all been conditioned to believe and live out terrible ideologies without even noticing it. And like our job is not to deny that or to sort of die in shame from that, but to look to the example Christ sets that there, you can confront those realities in yourself and, and change, repent as it were, and be different going forward. Um, I find a lot of hope in that. After that brilliant analysis, I forgive you for liking IPAs. Thank you for sharing. Ah. <laughs> Thank you. So you said uh, not only is the Bible imperfect, but you hinted at that maybe Jesus was imperfect as well, which raises the stakes for some people theologically. Yeah. But I hear you. I agree with your reading on that story 100%. Uh, preached on it recently and, and noted the same thing that Jesus has been conditioned by his culture and is blind to his own biases. And he fails in that uh. moment. I have spoken many times about Jesus' imperfection, and I, I I think we need to bring him down off that pedestal, bring him down off the cross, so to speak. Um, you know, that's an example. Cursing that cursing that poor fig tree. The man was just angry. Can we not just admit he's angry? Okay. Yes. Right. You know the 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 whipping the money changers. I always share my favorite version of that is when he went and braided the whip. Imagine the kind of like just anger and seething you know, like violence, you got to take in to go like, I can't find anything to beat these people with. So I'm going to go to make something and come back. Like the man had his moments. It was premeditated. Exactly. But to to Layton's point, that gives me hope when I have those moments too, Mm -hmm. of, you know, falling off what I call my spiritual practice bandwagon, you know, and, and, and having those responses as a human being. Yeah. Jesus had them too. So this is, this, is, this is why I love what Unity says about Jesus. He's not the exception. He's the example. <laughs> and we, and we've, mm, got, yeah. we've got lots of examples of him running the gamut of both the human spectrum and the spiritual spectrum. For sure. For sure. And I, and I, I just really appreciate uh, both of those takes on Scripture because Scripture is a nuanced, complex document, which at, at points is 
problematic and disappointing and and how not to do some things in other places it's incredibly inspiring and does provide us with glimpses of the best humanity that we can be and i think jesus more often than not leads that way but more often than not doesn't mean every single time can we can we can we title the show jesus was a jerk can we go that route? uh mm, well he's not up for nomination <laughs> on the supreme court so or yeah. <laughs> hey, I think we should honor our guest. She she mentioned it earlier. Jesus was a jerk to the woman. I think we should honor our guest. No greater honor on this show than having the show title after something a guest said. I just made that up, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, we'll Je- see. Jesus, Jesus was a jerk. Can it be? Like, come on, that's gonna grab some attention. Can right it be? There. Can we just say Jesus has been known to be a jerk? Oh, don't <laughs> dial it back now. Yeah. People don't listen to the uh, episode. I'm with Layton. Hashtag I'm with Layton. (laughs) We'll discuss show title later. But in the meantime, do we have anything for pass or poor? Uh, Real quickly, um, and I want to share this simply because the last time I shared uh, we did pass and poor, we kind of hit on this whole end times thing. I got another end times article. Apparently, we've narrowed down the location of the Ark of the Covenant to two locations. Oh, you better pour that. I think. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, there were a lot of theories floating around. You know, the ones, theories range from it being hidden beneath the Temple Mount to being held by a tribe in Africa, being captured by the United States during World War II, because apparently some people actually believe that Indiana Jones movie was a documentary and not an actual movie. Um, but, wow. but, um, there's another possible location, 76 miles away from Temple. The chest was sunk into Lake Tiberias, better known as the Sea of Galilee. Mm. And, and the belief is that the ark will rise from the depths of the lake as the world approaches and enters end times. Now... People are saying, wait, Ark Rising. And by the way, I'm, I'm at the Daily Star. Um, this is a website here. Um, people are now tying this into, hey, is maybe this is what climate change is all about. As climate change happens, yes, oceans will rise, but lakes, lakes, will, lakes will sink because, you know, they're not getting enough rain to replenish. Ark will bubble up. End times. There you go. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So we're all we're all, we're all we're all good again. I'm not Good jumping point. on that End one, time. but interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. So uh, I'll give you a choice. Both animal related. I've been on this animal related kick recently. Oh no no. Here's here's. You might want to hear about this one. Oh. So how do you get away with murder? Maybe don't write a blog post about getting away with murder. Oh, what do you think, Layton? Should we should we go further on this? Pass or poor? Wait, you've got to tell it to me again. It cut out for me for a second. Oh, okay. So how do you get away with murder? Maybe don't write a blog post about getting away with murder. Mm. Or, so you got that. There is, um, uh, Maine is investigating a restaurant that sedated its lobsters with marijuana. Or, rabbits surfing on the back of sheep. Where, where, where you want to go with I know so many choices. I think I want to know about the murder that got blogged about the most. Great choice. There it is. 
And we'll wrap up we'll wrap up after this. So last week, uh, police in Portland, we're two weeks now, police in Portland arrested sixty-year-old Nancy Crampton Brophy. She is charged with the murder and the death of her sixty-three-year-old husband, who's a chef, Chef Daniel. Um, she's a novelist. She's written lots of stories, suspense novels, and stuff like that. But what started to tip the police off was in 2011, she wrote a blog post called See Jane Published for, uh, for it, yeah, that's the name of the pod. Uh, sorry, that's the name of the, uh, the website. The blog. But the essay was titled How to Murder Your Husband. Wow. Yes. So the essay described a range of possible motives for murdering a husband. Uh, I mean, well, you know, all men are jerks, or as we talked about earlier. So you know, maybe she gets the benefit of the doubt. Um, ranging from yes. avoiding, so so here's possible motives: avoiding the financial hit of divorce, infidelity. Um, maybe your wife, the wife, is a contracted killer. She weighed the pros and cons of different methods: guns, which could be loud and messy and require some skill; knives, really personal and close up but you know blood's everywhere and might take a while for the person to bleed out um and she warned against committing a crime of passion most of the time there's a trail that leads directly to you each type of murder leaves clues a crime of passion does not look like a stranger was involved they were married for 27 years so if you're gonna kill somebody don't write about it first yeah my word. Um, interesting. Go ahead, Brian. No, I got nothing to add to that. Uh, um, interesting. Uh, I have something. Yes, go. I don't want her to be on the Supreme Court either. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well played. That's that. That's a perfect wrap up right there. <laughs> very good. Very good. So, um, any any final thoughts? Any concluding wisdom on? Telling fibs or telling the truth on having people believe you, on believing women, on forgiveness, uh, either one of you, any, any final thoughts? Um, I'll go first so that our esteemed guest can, can wrap us up with her final thoughts. Um, first thing is um, a, lot of, a lot of issues have been brought up, or one of the issues brought up is why is she talking about it now in relation to the Brett Kavanaugh situation? And I, and I, and I posted this on Facebook and it's been generated some interesting discussion. You know, when is the right time for a victim to tell their story? The correct answer is anytime they damn well feel like it. We, we, we cannot assign a timeline to people sharing. And when they finally do share, listen, mm-hmm. give them the benefit of the doubt, investigate. Yeah, excellent. That's what I got. Good. Layton? Yeah, um, I would say um, it's possible to believe women and still think it's complicated. You can do both. It's possible to believe that this world of Me Too is complicated and has nuance and gray areas and still be committed to justice happening for women who have been abused and other people who have been abused. Um, we have to get comfortable with the idea of holding the complexity of the situation. I think the, I think the dog agrees. <laughs> yeah, well. yeah. Layla's for it.
Well said. Well said, both of you. Well, thanks. Thank you, friends, for tuning in to Pub Theology Live. You can connect and spread the word on social media. You can listen anytime to our podcast on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or iTunes. And if you'd rate us there, that would be great. Let us know what you think about the show, and it helps others find us. And of course, you can watch us on IGTV, that's Instagram TV, YouTube, or the New Thought channel. And if you'd like to find uh, a conversation group like this happening in your neighborhood, check out the official directory at pubtheology.com and want to welcome a new group this week to the map, Theology on Tap in Glen Allen, Virginia. So welcome uh, friends there. And if you don't see one on the map near you, you can find some resources to help you start your own. So until next time, friends, drink responsibly and keep those conversations flowing. Thank you, Leighton. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, feel yeah. free to uh, drop in anytime, even if yeah. somebody's not absent. Um, <laughs> and it was a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, it was good to meet y'all too. This was a lot of fun, even with the heavy topic. Yeah, we, we so. brought you in on a light week. So uh, really <laughs> appreciate your your experience, your wisdom, and, and bringing nuance to the table, which I think is so needed in this conversation. So really just appreciate you uh, yeah, taking some time to join us. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs>